0: With us from Canada, joining us, Dr. Leanne Campbell. Leanne is one of, is a dear friend and also one of the most effective therapists in the world. I can say that without any doubt. What an honor it is to have Dr. Leanne Campbell joining us.
1: Welcome to the Leading Edge in Emotionally Focused Therapy with your hosts, Dr. James Hawkins and Dr. Ryan Reyna. EFT is a dynamic model that humbles even the most seasoned therapists, Together, we want to come alongside you as you continually push the leading edge of your understanding and application of this wonderful model developed by Dr. Sue Johnson.
2: All right. It indeed is our honor to welcome Dr. Leanne Campbell. She is uh, Dr. Leanne Campbell, an ISEF trainer, also a partner in Campbell and Fairweather Psychology Group in Vancouver Island. And also, I guess, are you the president of the Vancouver Island uh, EFT Center?
3: Well, David will want me to say co-president, of course.
2: There we go. Co-president. So <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it is definitely an honor to have you here with us, Leanne, you know, so. We've been doing a series and having some special guests come in. We've had you, we've had George, and you know what we really want to help our people like really begin to push their leading edge of learning EFT in different areas and particularly and also help push the leading edge with um, their clients. So today we want to talk about what about when our clients come in with relational injuries and it's just they're reeling from the pain of a relational injury. We want to figure out just from Dr. Campbell, because some of your specialty is in this area of loss, grief, and trauma. So, you ready for that, Liam?
3: I am. Thank you. Thank you both so much. It's an honor to be with both of you. Um, my pleasure. Uh, yes. Well, sorry. Go, go ahead for your assistant.
2: So, no. I mean, this couple—they walk in your office. You know, there's a relational injury. You recognize you can't completely go drop down into the injury and do all this repair work right away, but. You got to do something in stage one to help address this attachment injury that's in the room. What's your go-to focus and moves with that?
3: My go-to focus and moves are to help each of the partners to feel seen and heard Mm. and um, to maintain my emotional balance in doing so. And um, go to interventions would be our typical reflection, validate, track, track, reflect, validate. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I often say really to let the couple and the partners within that relationship wash over me in the zoom space or in the um you know in-person therapy room so that i can really get to feel and see and hear what's happening for them when there's been a relational injury at times that injury is at the forefront which is i think what you're describing Mm -hmm. at other times it can be in the background and not so prominent when it's in at the forefront We need, that's part of seeing and hearing um, what's happening for this couple and Mm. for the person who's been injured in particular. And we don't expect in day one, (laughs) stage one, to resolve that injury, but certainly we need to get to know something about it. And especially if the partner is having symptoms such as flashbacks and nightmares and intrusive um, memories, which can occur, um, not always. And and then the other thing that we want to establish, like we would in any context uh, when working with relational injuries is, you know, of course, to create some kind of safety, a safe haven alliance with each of the partners so that we can move forward together. And the other thing we need to be clear about is you know, what our couple, what each partner wants from the therapy process. Um, One of them may want to um, continue with the relationship, the other might not, and ambulance is common. So I think to really be patient and take the time to get to know and hear the couple, their personal histories, their relationship histories. And now, you know, you've heard us talking more and more. And we wrote about it in the primer, um, the EFET book that I wrote with Sue about the care model. So um, really hearing and seeing and understanding this couple and the partners within this relationship in the context in which they live and have lived, including the intergenerational context. And that's very important because it's, well, again, it's always important, but this relationship injury might be layered upon other kinds of injuries that, um, that represent a consistent theme of abandonment or betrayal or whatever the case may be, violation. And so we, we really need to understand that. We need to understand that in context. Of course, we tune into attachment, the A in care, um, the therapeutic alliance, relationship, and emotion. So we tune into um, affect regulation strategies, we know and you both know very very well our listeners know i'm sure your listeners um about um the finite number of ways that people cope people either lash out numb out or some combination of both and the lashing out is not very uncommon when the relationship injury is fresh and new and um most recently revealed, and we really need to tune into that. And then we tune into capacity. I use the word capacity. Uh, It's akin to window of tolerance. So how much flexibility um, versus rigidity is there in terms of these affect regulation strategies for each of the partners, and how rigid or flexible is the cycle? So that's a big, long answer. Um,
0: Really, that's, wow, a lot. We could do like 10 episodes right there. I'm actually want to come back with a follow-up question, if that's okay, Leanne. And uh, yeah, I mean, you could pick any of these, but but Sue (laughs) really emphasized this as well recently in a podcast with her. You said, in fact, your second comment was to maintain your own balance. And then five or six comments later, maybe 10, you talked about trying to uh, discern or assess what each partner wants. You said ambivalence is common. I would love it if you could speak to our listeners there. Um, we talk about how how important it is to not have any uh, to, for the therapist to not have an agenda, but that's easier said than done. It's not always easy to not sort of hope or want something to happen, which can uh, I'm, I'm assuming you might say cause us to lose our balance, or what what's some words you would say about that?
3: Right, okay. Well, my initial comment about balance. Was in response to the, I guess, the scene that was painted around (laughs) the complexity and the chaos that can sometimes feel so big and amplified in the room, understandably so, when there's an attachment threat, when there's a threat to the bond that matters most um, to these people or at least one of um, the partners. Potentially. So just to really tune in and listen and hear um, through the lens of attachment, we can find people's vulnerability before they do or before they reveal it. And that helps us to maintain our balance. And back to your other question, Ryan, thank you, about ambivalence. I think ambivalence is common, in my experience, um, 30 plus years now, um, having been in some of those original studies with Sue um, back in the 90s, ambivalence is common always but it's particularly common when there's been an attachment injury and again especially if it's newly revealed infidelity for example but it might be some other kind of injury you weren't there for me when the baby was born you weren't there for me when my parent was unwell you weren't there for me um, when i was going through that surgery whatever the case may be um so the thing i always say and feel very confident in now after many times of having it um shown to me is that ambivalence Uh, is is normal let's say it it will be typical it could be expected um, during a time of threat and uncertainty and unpredictability it'd be scary to trust so I'll often see the couple um, in these kinds of contexts once or twice um, together and then do individual sessions so that I can really um, get to know them and their experiences both um, personally and relationally and get to know their agendas for therapy so and then i'll come back and you know we do everything we do around ethics and around ensuring that the alliance um, is maintained and that there's no secrets and so on that um, again the listeners i'm sure know all about and then i'll often say that you know, I, I can't make any, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't make any predictions about the outcome. But what I can assure you is that you'll find clarity, that you'll find clarity in this process. And it, and it might hmm. not be um, in a couple of sessions, but most typically, you know, within four to eight sessions, we'll, you'll find some clarity about commitment to the relationship. And um That's been my experience. Absolutely. And then, of course, it's in stage two that that becomes very real.
2: And so, Leah, we're going to get ready to take a break. But when we come back where I want to get a little bit clearer, too, I love what you said, but we do have to help them feel seen. And so I want to kind of figure out what is that? What could we do in stage one, even though the pain is really to help allow them to see that we see the pain? And we'll talk to Dr. Campbell about that when we come back from this break.
0: Hey, I want to put a quick plug in for ICEFT. You may or may not be familiar with that organization, but ICEFT is the International Center for Excellence in Emotionally Focused Therapy. It's kind of our parent organization or the mothership, as we might say. This is Sue Johnson and her wonderful team of trainers, administrators, who have been working since the mid eighties to bring about, um, sustain and advance everything EFT around the world. As we say at our trainings, if you're just on a first date with EFT or just sort of uh, somewhat involved, maybe not, but if you really love EFT or EFT is your home, you should consider joining ICEF as an organization. That's the organization that organizes our trainings. Uh, it's a great website, isef.com. Their research page alone is worth a visit. You can keep up with what's going on all around the world. If there's a core skills in New Zealand, It'll be on that website. So a great opportunity to hear about our specialty trainings, addiction, uh, infidelity, um, EFIT, working with individuals. So consider checking out isef.com and maybe joining uh, the International Center for Excellence in Emotionally Focused Therapy.
2: All right, so Leanna, you know, Ryan I got two follow-up questions because that's this is good. I think the part where I hear people struggle the most is what do I do with all this pain that comes in in the early part of therapy, but I know we can't really go into it and camp out with it. So when you said that phrase, we have to help them feel seen. I don't know kind of what are the interventions there or maybe ways in which you help your clients to like, I see that pain that's where you're kind of bleeding out here.
3: Yeah, good question. Yeah, I think maybe um, see and hold their pain. Mm um hold their pain with them. So an example might be some version of the following. Um, yeah, I've said sorry a hundred times. Um, she doesn't believe me. That's not good enough. There's nothing I can do. And then already we're starting to hear the about the cycle in, in those comments. Um, and, you know, maybe the partner says something like, um, I, I, I hurt so badly. How could you do this to me? Where were you? Um, I, I can't believe anything. I, our marriage is a lie. Whatever the, the phrase may be. And then I'm listening in to the words that they use and I'm reflecting it back. And oftentimes what is palpable in the room, and especially if both people really care about one another and love one another, are layers of guilt and shame, and it's, and I often think about shame being the barrier to feeling and seeing and holding that partner's pain because it, it's like the partner bounces off that that layer of shame, and again, context is. A critically important because maybe that shame is layered in earlier experiences of trauma or hurt or whatever the case may be so reflecting that and in some version of um yeah i hear you do you see what happens here that as soon as you begin to share your pain that the thing that comes up for your partner it is all all the shame and 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 then you lose him again and then you lose him again he, he you can't feel him and you're alone again i get it i hear you so we are going to work through that um so at for now, um, and then maybe I want to get to know their history and put the attachment injury in the context what was happening in the months, years, weeks preceding that injury, or whatever it is the infidelity or the affair, whatever the case may be and put it in context of their relationship history and the cycle that um, is, that injury is, is embedded in.
0: Really great. I love the phrase see and hold as well. That's really good. So I have a similar follow-up question, and I don't want to – I know we got to go for time. Um, so my question is around escalation, you know, because that's really common as well in early attachment injury work. Um, and I know that – I want to ask you to go to the practical side. Conceptually, we're going to see escalation as, a, as a, a fight or a rage for connection, attachment panic, that sort of thing. Um, But we have a lot of new therapists that are listeners, you know. And I'm talking to someone with a tremendous amount of experience. I'm just curious: when you see someone escalate, when you see someone start to verbally attack their partner, they're going off track. Safety is about to be uh, sort of violated or disrupted. What What are your actual moves? What what do you go to? It, it probably happens second nature for you. Right? I think <laughs> I think sometimes it's hard for people with experience to go. What do I actually do? You know. So I'm just curious. How would you answer that question? What are two or three like interventions you do right in those moments?
3: Well, I think, again, I see and hold, and I'm the temporary attachment figure, so I will take that. I will take that anger, and I'll hold that anger. Uh, I'll have it directed toward me, that um, escalation, and, and, and I'll slow myself down. I'll use my voice. I'll use risk, everything that we know that Sue's given us in terms of this model, and, and I'll say, I hear you. I hear you, you're so angry. And then again, I'm gonna listen through the lens of attachment and tune in to what's happening below the surface. The thing I hear you saying is that you weren't there for me. I can't count on you. I'll never, ever, 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 ever ever trust you again. Some version of that. And you notice that as we use our voices and slow ourselves down, much like the parent in the grocery store, um, when we tune into our clients in the way that that Um, mom or dad or caregiver does in the grocery store that that soothes the nervous system and then they can slow down and then i will say some version of yeah i hear you. you 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 can't trust you've been so hurt um the relationship's been so damaged that that and and of course on the other side of all of that is this person means so much to you or it wouldn't hurt so much but this partner is not hearing any of that this partner is not hearing any of the um parts around um I've counted on you, I gave everything to you, I love you so much, how could you have done this to me? The partner only can hear the anger and the um, escalation. So when we can tune into and join with the client who is in, pain and distress and hold that and that the other partner is watching and listening and tuning in and then if we can contain it enough and hold it enough that we can set up an encounter then we can begin to provide a different kind of message um, that begins to slow everything down and begins to help the partners hear one another in a different way
2: yeah. And if I joined that, I love what you did there. Like you reflected the pain so clearly and tied it, what I mean is, and you tied it back to the attachment. You tied it back to the context of the relationship. And I love that, like you did like, so you come become an attachment figure Reflect it. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. I see. And then you went into this like proxy voice. I reached for you. I tried this. I was there for you. You take it on and make it like, you, as Sue was saying, like you take their vulnerability and you make it be seen in the room and you tie it back to the pain that comes in the relationship. I love it.
0: Yeah, and it's a very different thing uh, to see your partner raging at you because they miss you or right. because they feel left out than it is to, to see to experience that as them saying you're a bad person. So in many ways, what I hear you saying is I use a lot of myself. I use a lot of reflection. I try to match this instead of trying to just stop it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I become this attachment translator, this attachment interpreter, to say this this escalation I'm seeing actually comes from a place of wishing we could be together. And then that's a very different message. Am I getting that right?
3: Brilliant! I love it. I love the word translation. We are absolutely attachment translators at the outset of therapy, almost always, but especially when working with attachment injuries. And again, especially if they're alive and um, amplified in the room.
2: And I think that's the key part where I keep hearing from people out in the EFT world. They've kind of—I uh, don't know if it's been said or misheard, or whatever. You can't like you can't deal with attachment injuries in stage one. So yeah. what hit me was when you said we have to match it. We can't just try and get it out of here. We have to let them know that we see it. But what what we're doing in stage when I'm hearing you is you step into the place that the partner probably can't because a cycle doesn't let them hear their partner's pain. All they hear is blame and guilt and anger. When you step in, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. You put it to attachment. You put it to the pain that's so explicit. And then still try and do that enactment around that pain that's getting tied to you know this hurt this attachment injury here so good stuff
3: yeah absolutely and i think um i think what i would say is that we do um tune in to the injury in stage 1 but full resolution will not happen until stage 2 oftentimes because it's not until stage 2 that the partners can
0: Oh, oh, we had a little technical error there, but we're back. Can you join us again, Leanne?
3: Yes, thank you. Yes, so I think, um, yeah, I really appreciate what you said, James. I think it's true that... So what I would say is that we do tune in to the attachment injury, absolutely. Um, In stage one, we must, because of course, that's a big part of helping our clients to feel seen and heard. And again, especially if it's fresh and alive and amplified in our rooms or our therapy spaces, whatever the case may be. But it's in stage two that we can um, really have full resolution. And a big reason for that is that a, a big part of the apology is not only the sincere, heartfelt, um, eye contact <laughs> um, kind of apology that allows the partner who's been injured to feel seen and heard and for their pain to be held. But it's also the reassurance that this won't happen again. And oftentimes at the outset of therapy, our um, clients will say some version of, I don't know, I don't know i don't know what happened and that doesn't provide any reassurance because if you don't know this is what partners say then how can i know this won't happen again and it's really the case that often in stage two as we know when we help people to tune into and access and find aspects of themselves and their experience that gives them um a, a better sense of knowing an expansion of the self that we talk about so much in EBIT that they can begin to share um, this new awareness that helps the partner to feel reassured that this won't happen again. Okay. I get it. I hear you. The thing that happened is that that when I was there um, in the midst of that surgery, the thing that came up for you is the loss of, your father when you were a little boy and 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 you you went into this place of terror around abandonment and the thing i hear you saying is that you weren't aware of that you you didn't have access to that until now it might not go exactly like that but um to to kind of paint the picture of why it is that we might say that resolution doesn't Occur until stage two. Uh, it's it's much like we talk about with withdrawal engagement. That um, I can't know you if you are not to be known, and I can't share me if I'm if I don't have myself.
2: Well, I like that. That was a, a different piece of focus that hit a light bulb for me. Like particularly that question with in the stage two focus is: Can we help that partner who maybe committed the injury find the words and the and the kind of the function around? The injury in like when they're able to name that, that's a healing thing for them. And then you t- kind of correlated it with a form of withdrawal reengagement that then can give like in a sense the injured partner who might been a withdrawal, may have been a pursuer, but is going to engage a part of them. I need some resolution here. My body needs resolution here to make sense about this anomaly that happened in our story that defied my kind of view of you and has reshaped it. I need you to help me put, install a new frame, a frame here to help understand this, so my body can feel safe to move forward. I really like that. Yeah, you gonna say something, there, Ryan?
0: No, I'm just thinking. I'm. I don't want to. I don't want to be out of uh, rhythm with where Leanne is. Uh, I like what you said, and then and then my brain jumped on resolution. That word, you know, because. I'm kind of curious how you'd think about this. One of the things that makes attachment injury work hard, in addition to the relational trauma, is you're having to manage two people's very intense grief processes. Mm. And and people very rarely grieve the same way or the same speed. Uh, oftentimes one, part, one party has found out about the trauma much later than the other. And so they're coming in maybe seven, eight months, two years after the other person. So they're in very different places in their grief story. And, uh, you know, one of the things that relationships are often grieving is the relationship we once had is kind of over, right? Even if we sort of, quote, unquote, make it or even heal, you're still grieving. This is now a part of your story. And, and the, to be together is, is still to be together in a different way, almost like an integration as much as it is like resolution. Anyway, that's kind of what I was thinking about. I'd love to hear your thoughts on anything around that.
3: Yeah, well, I love what you're saying, and that you bring grief into the room because it's absolutely um, critical and relevant. And and I think oftentimes, not always, um, but oftentimes, so too is shame. And again, shame can be multi-layered, um, depending on the, um, our couples' um, relationship personal relationship experiences that might impact. Um, So going back to that earlier example, as that person tunes into what it was happening, um, so too is that individual able to dissolve some of the shame that has been a barrier to connection. And as that shame dissolves, so too can the couple find one another. And as they find one another, they can begin to grieve together. And that's right. Sometimes they're at different stages in terms of that grief process, Um, the, the partner, who was injured in this case might be quite far ahead because that partner's already um, felt the sense of loss Uh, whereas this other partner has been protecting the self um, from everything associated with what happened with the injury that occurred so yes grief is highly relevant and again it can be multi-layered so I can think of all kinds of examples where maybe there's unresolved grief in the room and that this grieving process taps into um, a grief process that hasn't yet been um, observed or addressed. And that's a part of it. And once again, ideally, we don't grieve alone. We don't encounter vulnerability alone. So as we bring our partners back together, even in the wake of a significant relationship injury, um, they can move forward together in a completely different way that We often hear people say that their relationship is stronger than ever. And they wouldn't have said that in day one, that escalated couple.
0: That's a lovely, that's a good day when that happens, right?
3: Yes, that is. Yeah, because that's right.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not my favorite truth about life. But honestly, it's hard to grow without some pain and some challenge. You know, so if your relationship is pretty easy, I mean, that's good news. But a lot of people don't really go deep until they experience some significant challenges. So they're here we sit in the the precipice of that moment with this great opportunity. And uh, that's something that we often don't see, though, until much later. So I'm curious for you, Leanne. I know that you and I have talked a few times um, at retreats or wherever that you do a lot of trauma work. Mm. Yeah, you, know, you work with uh, f- first responders and all kinds of things. So I wonder if you could bring our listeners if, if you if you're willing to be a touch personal here, you know, as you walk down the hall to head home mm. and, and as you continue to come in knowing once again tomorrow I'm going to deal with some really hard stories. And even if therapy's going well, it, it can be pretty horrific. So what do you kind of say to yourself about that? How do you keep yourself going? How do you find your balance as you referred to earlier?
3: Yeah. Well, the question alone moves me because honestly, I, it is an honor and a privilege to walk through these doorways with people. It really, really is. So what do I say to myself? I think gratitude that um, we have the privilege and honor to be with people in their most difficult, vulnerable moments and to join them in walking to the other side of that, um, either individually or with our couples or with our families. And, you know, my whole way is punctuated by a number of doors of amazing people that I work with. So I have an army of support around me and I'm so grateful for, and an unbelievable, staff and front desk who really support all the people that I work with from the first phone call on so I am yeah I'm grateful and uh, I love it and I love that we can continue to grow in this profession so it's great.
2: Liam thank you so much I think that's an important thing to not just move on from how much you even allow just Ryan's question around this area to touch you about your work you know um, that just reminds, like you know, there's so much to learn about skill and focus and EFT and things of nature, but you can't teach what just happened to Leanne Campbell's heart right there. You can't teach that. That's not covered in externship or core skills. Like the fact that you can say it's a privilege. Why? And when you said that, Leanne, it linked me back to what you said earlier. I um how that your boldness to welcome the anger and the pain into the room and say I will step in as that attachment figure. Um, that's the thing about EFT that hits me is the proximity we work with our clients. And some people are like, do you do that all day? Every day? How do you do that? Because actually misattunement hurts more and takes more energy. Um, so anyway, I don't know. I just really appreciate you letting that touch you so much. And I hope our heat listeners can listen. Like, we're great at The Leading Edge. We wanted you to get practical and focused but you can be practical and focused when you have that heart that Leanne just showed us here. And I really appreciate that. And she didn't just post it to her own, but we have to, EFT therapists, we really do need community of connection to do this deep experiential work that we do.
0: Yeah, I agree. I appreciate that too, Leanne. hope I didn't set you up there for too personal of a question. I got, great. I got one more for you, but sure. before I do, I want to just reflect what you said. I mean, you, you take an angle or a frame to see this as an opportunity to, to step into really hard situations and you're grateful that you get to do it. You rely on an army of people and, and you see the, the growth opportunities there. And that's a big deal. You take away any one of those three and, you know, in some ways this becomes undoable almost. Is that, is that a fair way to say uh, that? Yeah.
3: Yes. Yeah. I think it is. I think it is. Um, yes.
0: <laughs> okay.
3: Yeah. The, the uh, I'm just thinking about what you're saying about all three of them. Yeah. I mean, I think that we, our greatest opportunity and our, our clients greatest opportunity comes with us. That's right. Stepping into their pain, joining them in their pain, um, holding them in their anger seeing them in their most difficult moments, their most vulnerable moments, their moments when they, you know, maybe are not showing up as their best selves, whatever the case may be. Um, and yeah, we do hear a lot of difficult stories, um, in our community as I'm sure every therapist does in every community. And it's my community that helps me to hold all of that. And, um, yeah. And, and grow together. And that's, yeah, privilege and an honor. And and it's um, life-giving.
2: I guess I, the moment she said the greatest opportunity, I pulled my pen. I was like, yeah, she's about to say a nugget. And she did. Mm-hmm. The greatest opportunity for our clients is us stepping into their pain.
0: It's good stuff. I like, I like the phrase, it's my community too, right? That would it'd be a, a world changer if we thought more that way. But since we got you, if it's okay. So, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate the, the heart of that and, and, and uh, sharing your, your inner world there just a bit. Just, flipping, Can I, say yeah, quickly,
2: yeah. I know we're going long on this one, but this is good, you all. This is good nuggets of getting clear. So, we know we're going past our usual time, but it's worth it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, one, one last question about the process, if I could. So, attachment injury, we've done the, the grind sometimes of stage one work. Let's call it what it is. It's not easy. I don't want I don't want the, the elegance of Leanne's teaching to to convey that, that this is all simple and easy. I suspect even for her, it's disorienting at times. It's exhausting. Um, I bet she even has to use one of those uh, her infamous scarfs to yeah. to, to, <laughs> to wipe a little sweat off us, right? I mean we sweat sometimes when we're in these places and, and it's not always elegant and sometimes you just gotta hang in there. But when that you do Yeah, yeah. But when you do you get to see the beauty in stage two. You get to join people um, in hard places, and you see the incredible opportunity there. So my question for you is, what are you looking for towards the end of stage two? You know, how do you start to go, this feels resolved? How do, what do you see in couples' eyes? What do you see? What do you feel? What starts to give you indicators? Hey, this bond is now secure.
3: Right. OK, well, there's all of the academic literature that helps us to know uh, that people can, um, you know, tune into themselves and um, coherently and directly share their needs, their longings, their vulnerabilities, and they can give and receive love. There's that. I think page 37 of ATIP or something like that. Attachment theory and practice. But what do we feel in the room? What, what happens in our therapy space? I think if we just think really kind of simplistically about the attachment injury resolution model, what do we wanna see happen in stage two? And in the primer, we wrote, you know, there's not this dark line between stage one and stage two in EBIT. There's not in couple therapy either. And oftentimes the attachment injury resolution really also represents either withdrawer or engagement or pursuer softening. So what does it look like? It looks like some version of the partner who's been injured can now share their story, their um, relationship story of what it felt like. And and the moment when, um, she heard, or in the moment where she read, or in the moment where he told, or she told, or whatever the case may be, and um, feel it. And again, I'm going to be the temporary attachment figure to really hold that, create a a felt experience, and and contain that. hold the edges so that the partner can really see and feel and tune into um, the, the partner and, and the pain associated with that. And when we do that, sometimes shame will emerge and we need to hold that or we need to name it and, and um, put it aside so that the person doesn't bounce off that shame. But oftentimes we would have worked through some of those layers if there were layers. And then we want to, you know, in EFT, we talk about following and leading. So I don't want to ask for an apology. And there's no rules about what this might look like. It's all about what it feels like for the partner who's been injured. So I might say something like, as you feel your partner's pain, as you see, as you touch, as her eyes touch your eyes, uh, what are you drawn to do or to say? What, what you, Whatever the case may be, because we can rely on attachment. We can rely on attachment theory and science, and we can rely on our roadmap that sue has provided us and then you can let it unfold and then you know jenlin and others talk about experiencing and that they you know the attachment injury resolution model doesn't come from some kind of mechanical recipe it comes from watching how this evolves with couples so then we can let it let it move and where that lands is often some version of a felt sense of an apology a felt sense of reassurance for the person who's been injured um, a washing away of the shame and sometimes that's not um you know sometimes that's the last frontier sometimes self-forgiveness um doesn't naturally follow forgiveness from the partner who's been injured and we might need to ask about that and name that and then there's all the grief ryan that you um beautifully highlighted that might come with grieving the relationship but also grieving that part of self that that self that i thought i knew it's true how could i have done that who am i um how, how could i have done that some version of that and again these are themes that um can emerge um but yeah i think um you said it earlier and in other podcasts it's about trusting the process um igniting the process and then staying out of the way and holding mm. it as we need to
2: i love that Liam. especially like when you just getting to the academic part. But then when you said, I like that part of it for you is that felt sense of reassurance for the injured partner and the washing away of shame that happens in front of your eyes of the in, the person who injured. Thank you so much, Lee. just for real, I think this for me felt so clarifying, but that's not all people. I feel like I'm doing a commercial here. Leanne and I will be doing a training on attachment injuries over the course of four days with uh, the Toronto uh, EFT Center with Rob and Blake. That will be, and I'm supposed to have the dates ready. Oh, there we go. March 31st and April 1st, one weekend there. And then also April 7th and 8th. And we're going to be talking about attachment injuries around things like trauma, grief, loss, and also relational injuries. And we're going to be teaching and going over the attachment injury repair model. And we'll talk about some of the care model that Leanne taught here, just once again, to help get even clear and help clinicians really be skilled on that. So if you want to, we will put a link to registration for that training here in the show notes. And so thank you all again for and thank you, Dr. Campbell, for sharing your leading edge with us, pushing our clients leading edge in their own pain and their own injuries. And hopefully It'll help push the leading edge for our listeners as well. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Such a pleasure.
2: All right.
1: Thank you for listening. We hope this experience helps you push the leading edge in your work to help people connect with themselves and with each other. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a five-star review. You can contact us at push the leading Edge at gmail.com and you can follow us on our Facebook page at Push the Leading Edge you can follow Ryan on Facebook at Ryan Rayner Professional Training and on his website RyanRaynerTraining.com you can follow James on Facebook and Instagram at DocHawkLPC you can also check out his website DocHawkLPC.com